want to share with you this morning, um, it's a love story. As a matter of fact, it's the love story from which all other true, genuine love stories come from. And we want to look at it um, from the eyes of the people who are participating in it. And so we'll be sharing from Genesis chapter 22. And many of you will be familiar with this as the account of when God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And um, the thing about this is that this is one of the highlights, one of the culminating highlights of Abraham's life. He had walked with God now for over 30 years. And had been a, a, all of those years, God had taken him from a man who was a pagan to start off with into knowing who God was. And gradually over a period of these 30, 35, 40 years, God was taking him through um, success and failure, uh, victories and defeats, and slowly and gradually he was transforming this man, creating faith within this man. And it got to the point where later people talking about uh, Abraham, they talked about Abraham being the friend of God. And so this is another major step in their relationship. And what's going to take place is that this is going to be a revelation um, in the flesh, a living, breathing revelation of the heart of God. And an invitation, a challenge for Abraham to enter into that and participate in what God himself was doing. Now much earlier, back in Genesis 18, when God was establishing one of the covenants that he had made with Abraham, it said that Abraham believed God and God credited that to him as righteousness. And so he had told Abraham earlier <clears throat> Because he was God's chosen instrument and because God's hand was upon him leading and guiding him and directing him. And this was the man and the family through whom God had chosen to reveal his love and mercy and grace. God says when he's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he makes this statement, Shall I hide from Abraham that which I'm about to do? He wanted Abraham to know. Jesus is going to say the same thing. Uh, in John 15 to the disciples you have not chosen me I've chosen you and he said I've called you not a servant anymore but I've called you friends a servant is told what to do doesn't necessarily know why doesn't need to know why he just needs to know what the will is and to do it but he said I've called you friends because I want you to know I want to share in this I want you to have a part in what I am doing And so you remember Abraham and, and Sarah. Uh, God called him when he was 75 years old, and they had no children. That was a curse in their days. That, to their society and way of thinking, that these people were not right with God in some way, or somewhere in their past, or in their ancestors' past, there had been a really big mistake, or a big sin. And so they had no children. That was their hope and their future. 
And God came to them and promised them to have children. And they waited for 25 years and still no children. Abraham's 100 years old. Um, Sarah's in her 90s and given up hope. So they had a plan B, which uh, came out with Ishmael. And God said, I will bless him because of you. But that's not what I said. And so you all remember that uh, this child, Isaac, was the miracle baby, the gift of God. And he was through him, God said, it's through Isaac that your seed will branch out and become multitudinous. And that was going to happen in the future. And it says it's through Isaac that all the people on earth will be blessed. He will carry on the same promise that God had given Abraham. And so it's at this point, uh, Ishmael has already uh, been dealt with and has gone, has been gone for years now. And we're in chapter 22 of Genesis. And it says, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And the first thing we need to notice is there is communication and there is personal communication. God is speaking. Abraham is hearing. And this is not an unusual thing. This is a thing where God speaks to Abraham and Abraham speaks to God. And for us as Christians, that should be a part of our daily walk, communing with God and having God speak to us and guide us and direct us. It should be an ongoing conversation that's part of our life. And so there's this kind of uh, relationship that's there between these two, built up over these many years. And God calls to him and Abraham says, here I am. And God says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So basically he says, I want you to take your one and only son whom you love, go to this mountain and kill him as a sacrifice for God. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled a donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, cut the wood for the burnt offering, arose and went to the place of which God had told him. It took him three days to get there. So no hesitation. Um, I don't know what was going on. It doesn't tell us what's going on in Abraham. Or, but there you see that he has gotten to the place now when even though he may not understand... When God speaks, he will obey. He doesn't know what's going on in the future. He just knows what he's been instructed to do, and he will do it. And so they went, and um, after they had got there after three days, they told the servants to stay with the donkey, put the wood of the sacrifice on his son Isaac, and he says, I and my son will go up and worship, and we'll come back. So they had the wood of the offering. He put it on Isaac. Isaac's carrying up um, this thing up the hill of Moriah. Uh, Abraham has the knife, and he's got the fire in his hand, and and they're going up together. And Isaac uh, has a, a legitimate question. He said, my father? And Abraham responds to him like he did to God. Here I am, my son. And he said, we've got the fire. We've got the food, the wood. Where's the lamb? 
And Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And so they went both of them together. When they came to the place where God had told him about, he built the altar. They usually built these in those days out of field stone, undressed stone, or, or uh, turf if they didn't have the stone. But he built this altar, got the wood and laid it on it, and um, then he took his son and bound him on the altar on top of the wood. Uh, about that time, I think Isaac's getting the picture <laughs> And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And so he takes the knife. And at that point, the Lord called to him from heaven. An angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, uh, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. Um, And it was said to this day on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and he said, God says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand on the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. In your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together back to Beersheba where they started. The trip home was a different trip than the trip out. So I want us to look at this. Uh, It's a very unusual thing for God to do. And it is a love story. And it's the love of God for his people And he wants us to understand, but more than that, he wants you and I to enter in and participate in this. Because um, we're going to look at this a little more carefully now. In Genesis 22, 2, where God is telling Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. This is the first time the word love is used in the Bible. Okay? First time the word love is used is used in the Bible. I'm wanting you to, and it's a, um, it's a common word for love that is used throughout the Old Testament, but it becomes the word for God's election love. What it means is this is an undeserved, unmerited, this is an unconditional love. That's what he's talking about. And so, God is saying to Abraham, I want you who loves your son in this way unconditionally and I want you to sacrifice him to me. What you love the most 
I want you to offer as a sacrifice to God. There's another word that's used throughout the scripture. It's, it's a, a word for mercy, kindness, or loving kindness. That's, uh, the word for love is ahav, and the word for this covenant love is hesed. And hesed is a covenant love. It is the outward expression of a living relationship because you're in a covenant relationship. But without a covenant, there can be no hesed. There can be not that kind of love. So the love of God, the one that he's talking about here with uh, Isaac, the unconditional love is what causes, makes it possible for us to have a covenant with God. Both of them are two just different sides of the same coin. It's not two different things. It's the same thing, but expressed in a different way. Because of God's unconditional love for us, we have the opportunity of personally entering into a personal relationship with Him. That's what a covenant is. But that's all based on this love from God. This is the, the word for love, the ahav that he's talking about Isaac here. That's the, the word that the New Testament translates as agape. It's a deliberate love. It's an elective love. And it's also a love that chooses. Now, for the Hebrews, they had no concept of love as an idea or an abstraction. When they used the word love, they thought of it as an activity. Love is not something you think about. Love is what you do. And there is no love of God that is not active. So we get confused sometimes. We have love songs. We have love poetry and have all these kind of stuff. We're talking about love. And love becomes this kind of abstract ideal up here. But we don't live that way. The love that God is talking about here is the love that is lived or it's not love at all. So this is the unconditional love that God has given to us. It's an active love. It's the love that we're going to be uh, finding when God is going to love us so much that he gives his only son. It's the kind of love in 1 John chapter 4 first letter of John chapter 4 that John is describing here and he's going to say God is love in verse 9 in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him in this is love not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, that's a substitute for our sins. And then later on in the same um, chapter there in verse, verse 19, he says, we love because he first loved us. So this is the love story out of which all love that's really love originates. Our love the best it can be is a response to the love of God. And it's an active love. And if our love in a response to God is not active, then it's not love. And so 
this is what he was talking about. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this is the word that it uses, agape, describes the love of a person. But, and we, we do uh, a disservice to, to 1 Corinthians 13 when we take it out of context because this was a letter that was written to churches, written to Christian people. 1 Corinthians 13 is effective and active only when a person is in Christ. Because God is love and he's the author of that love. And he's the only one that has it. And if he lives in our hearts, then we have 1 Corinthians 13. And that's the only way that we have 1 Corinthians 13. And it talks about love in 1 Corinthians 13. It's not knowledge. It's not information. It's what you do, how you live. You are either a loving person or you're not. And there's not a whole lot in between there. So a person who is in Christ, therefore he can love with this kind of love. And this is why with the love of Christ first loved him, it's like the love that God has for us. We find out, Paul talks about it again in Romans 5, when he says that, um, you know, sometimes even for a good man, someone would dare to die. But God shows, demonstrates his love for us in this. It's an active love again. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what love is. And so this is why, again, back to 1 Corinthians 13, this is why love never fails and why it has to be the love of God. Because there's coming a time, Paul tells us, when the love of most will grow cold. And the challenge, the accusation at the church at Ephesus, the strongest, most theologically sound church that there was at the time, you've left your first love. Nothing wrong with your orthodoxy. You've got the information. You've got the doctrine. You've got the right beliefs. But you're not living it. So I wonder what he would be saying to us today. So this is why love never fails. It's an unconditional love. It's not dependent upon the worth or the actions of the loved one, but only on the lover. And we sing a song sometimes, Jesus, lover of my soul. And he's the only one that can love us in that way. And people are looking and longing for that because that's what people That's what we were created for. And we look in different ways. We try to fill it up with things. We try to fill it up with sex or other kinds of things. We try to use people. We try to do whatever it can to fill that emptiness and void and nothing. It will always fail at the end of the day unless it's the love of God because he's the only one that can do that. And you cannot have that for any other person unless the love of God is in you. So God's question to Abraham, the challenge was, do you love God more than Isaac? You remember Jesus was asking Peter the same thing in John 21, the first time he asked him, Peter, do you love me more than these? Back in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37 
Jesus has been telling the disciples, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. Because this kind of commitment divides people. It's a strange thing, isn't it? Love divides people. And so he says, anyone, and this is the word phileo, friendship. Uh, phileo kind of love is a very emotional thing. It's based on feelings. It's based on uh, camaraderie. Anybody can have these feelings for anybody else at any time. You don't have to know the person well to be drawn or attracted to that other person. It's the love that, on which friendships are based. There's just something about some people that... Uh, the personality fits with yours or whatever, and you like them. You know, you have things in common, and you, you enjoy being with them, doing things. That kind of friendship. And Jesus says, anyone who loves father or mother more than me in this way is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's what he's saying to Abraham in Genesis 22. Uh, Take your one and only son whom you love unconditionally, the child of promise, the child of hope, the child of your future, the child on which all the promises of God himself are centered and focused in, and I want you to sacrifice him out of love for God. And Abraham got up and went. And Isaac comes with him. He's an innocent person in this whole thing and he doesn't know what's coming but Abraham does and God does and so he's telling Abraham to go to this mountain um, Mount Moriah in the land of Moriah it's both a mountain and a mountain range an area uh, you know we live in Uvalde County and we also live in the city of Uvalde and so if you People say, well, where are you from? I'm from Uvalde. Does that mean you live in the county or do you live in town? Both of them have the same name. Same thing with Moriah. It's an area and it's a localized place. So they're going up to that area and God's going to tell him this, this specific mountain. And um, this mountain is going to eventually be the place where... Um, Solomon's temple is going to be built on this mountain. And so it's going to be the place where God meets with people. And God tells Abraham, I want you to offer him up as a whole burnt offering. Literally what it means is whole burnt offering is an offering that you lift him up, signifying the offering of the victim as a whole burnt offering in complete Dedication, whole burnt offering, you place them on there, and the whole thing is burned, consumed. And that's what he was telling him to do. Now, in hindsight, later on, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Abraham believed God, that God was able to raise up Isaac if it was necessary to fill, fulfill the promise. I don't know how clearly Abraham himself understood that. But he trusted that God who made the initial promises is going to be able to fulfill the promise. He didn't know how. But we don't, know, we don't have to know how. It's enough to know the promise of God and who made the promise. And to trust him 
that he is going to guide us into what we are to do. So as they're walking up the mountain, Isaac asks the question, what about the lamb? And Abraham in verse 8, remember, he says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And they went, both of them together. Now, um, this word provide literally means to see. And when he says later on that God, this is the mountain, the Lord will provide, it means the Lord will foresee. And so it's, we understand this use of the language. Um, I need somebody to do this, and somebody stands up and says, I'll see to it. Well, you see to it that this is done. You know, you make sure it happens. You provide for it. You do. Um, and that's what this word means. And so um, he says, God's going to provide. We just need to look for the provision. Sometimes, Isaac, the provision is you. Abraham's over 100 years old. Um, by this time, he's uh, 112 on up. Isaac's a young guy. We don't know how old he was at this point. Uh, who runs faster? At this point, who is stronger? We get no indication of any difficulty here. Isaac submits totally to his father in trust. Abraham submits totally to God in trust. That's what faith is. In the face of death, that's what faith is. Later on, um, in the book of Exodus, when God is about to deliver the people from 400 years of slavery and bondage. God talks to them about the Passover lamb. And each family gets a lamb and they slaughter it. And they take the blood and they put it on the doorposts and the lentil of their house forms a cross. And God says to them, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where we get the name Passover. It's the blood of the innocent lamb that shed on the, um, put on the households of these families. It's a statement of faith because a plague is coming that's going to kill all the firstborn of every living thing in Egypt, except for those under the blood. And those under the blood are passed over the judgment of God. God himself will provide the lamb and when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to him to be baptized the Holy Spirit who had told him that he was to be the forerunner of the Messiah bore witness in John the Baptist's heart and he looked and God said this is the one and John looked around at his disciples and he said look that's the lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the whole world. A few days later, he saw Jesus passing by again. And again, John says to his disciples, look, there you go. That's the Lamb of God. He's the one. He's the one that God has provided so that Isaac can live. And so that you and I can live. He's the Lamb of God. And so Abraham says, God will provide it. We will see God's provision. And John saw it. And so, God's going to provide. And they walked, both of them, together. Who walked with Jesus up the hill of Calvary? couple of thieves some Roman soldiers who were doing the executing some people who were following behind um, one guy that they grabbed from the crowd and forced compelled him to help carry the cross but Jesus wasn't alone when he walked up that hill the father walked with him So God is providing something for you and I as well. In the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen, Abraham lifted up his eyes. And he was about to sacrifice his son. He was going to go through with it. And God stopped him. And then he confirmed the promise and the blessing. It's through your offspring. And Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. Uh, on the human side, a descendant of his, a man of faith. So this is what we celebrate, actually, in our communion service. And um, the death that he dies in Genesis, it's to establish the people of God as God's chosen people. What Jesus does in the New Testament is he expands that calling and that election, opens the door for everyone. And this was one of the radical things of the New Testament, that Jesus died not just for Abraham and his family, not just for Isaac and his descendants, but for all of us. And Paul talks about it as the mystery of God, the mystery of Christ, that the Gentiles, people like you and I, are included as equals in the sight of God, under the blood and unconditional love of God himself. And it's God who sent his son to cleanse us and to forgive us because of his love for us. And that's the kind of love that he imparts for us. And he tells the disciples, as I have loved you, you are to love one another unconditionally with this kind of love. As the Father has loved me, he says, we are to love each other. And so, it's that unconditional love that we see in John 13, isn't it? Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. Washing the feet of Peter, who's going to deny and swear down, call a curse upon himself that he never knew who Jesus was. This man that he had pledged undying loyalty to. It's the love of God that Jesus is washing the feet of Judas Iscariot. Because it's an unconditional love, not based on the work, merits, deserving, anything else of the person loved, 
but it's based on the heart of the lover. And that's God. Now, what that means, unconditional love, is he will pay any price, and he did, out of love for you. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We can never merit it. We can only receive it. And the best thing we can do is receive it and respond in kind and become vehicles through whom that love can flow through others. And that's what he calls us to do. It's not an unconditional love doesn't mean that you get stepped on. It's a pretty harsh love sometimes because it's a love that deals in truth and it's a love that is strong enough to allow the other person to depart if that's what they want. And Jesus showed us that, the rich young ruler. He wanted to know, Mark says, Jesus loved him and he told him the truth about what was going on in his heart. And the man turned away and went away sorrowful, but he went away. And unconditional love creates that opportunity. It's the kind of love that uh, the prodigal son received from his father taken everything, including his good name, and destroyed it all and blew it all away and came back uh, dirty and destitute, broken, starving, smelly like pigs. And his father went around and the man started to confess and he embraced him. Embraced him. He didn't care how he smelled, didn't care what he looked like, didn't care where he had been or what he had done. All he knew is that he had come home. And he welcomed him back as a son. Doesn't mean that what he had done didn't matter. It meant that his love was greater than his sin. So that's the kind of love that he talks to us about. And Paul tells us in this, in Romans chapter, um, let me get my, where am I here? Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He's talking about this very love of God. And he's asked the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? And in verse 32, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him Graciously give us all things. That's the unconditional love of God. It makes it possible for us to participate in a new covenant in the blood of Jesus. You can turn your back on the covenant if you want. The love has opened the door and created the possibility and the opportunity. Uh, John put it this way. He said, those who received him, he gave the right to become sons of God, children of God. So as he's talking again, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, and that's the invitation for a communion this morning. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. 
And so we are. And so he invites you to come. As Jesus was talking to um, the Pharisees, they were questioning him and challenging him in John chapter 8. And they got into a discussion of who their fathers were and all that sort of thing. And at the end there, Jesus makes this statement. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. What did Abraham see? In Genesis 22, he saw the heart of God, the unconditional loving heart of God that would offer his son to take your place in mine. Abraham saw it and was glad. It meant life to his son. It meant life to him. It means life to you and to me. And when he received Isaac back off of that uh, altar, it was a resurrection. A resurrection. And so the three days home was a joyous rejoicing in new life and new hope because God had provided the lamb. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And he is the one who invites you to come. So we have communion every Sunday. It's not a ritual in the sense that it's something that we just go through the motions. It's something that should mean something to us. It's because of our sin that we needed a sacrifice. And we needed this sacrifice because that's the only one that could atone for who we are. And it's the only way that we could be changed from within, transformed from the inside. It's not something we can do, only something we receive. And so the Lord invites us and it's because on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, Take, eat, this is my body broken for you. He's the lamb about to be slain for our sins. After supper, he also took a cup, and after he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Each of you drink from this cup. This is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many. And so because of God's unconditional love expressed, active in the sacrifice, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this becomes a door of opportunity for us to enter into a personal living relationship with God himself. It's through the blood of Christ, through the forgiveness that his blood brings to us. And the open invitation is for all who will come. So will those who are serving communion please come forward?